good to have you here with us this morning, Grace Church. And uh, we're going to be in 1 John. We're continuing our series through the book of 1 John. And the series is called Light, Love, Life. And, and Betty put it very well um, in that video just now that God's plans are good for you. He desires good for you. And this morning we're going to find out that He wants to forgive you. He wants to lead you. He wants to be a good father to you. And it's going to be, um, Lord willing, an incredible time for us together as we open up God's Word. If you would, turn to 1 John chapter 3. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 24 uh, this morning. And uh, does everyone just enjoy daylight savings? Huh? Oh, man, don't you love just losing an hour's sleep? It's my favorite. It's, this is like my favorite time of the year. Um, I saw some people walking in with ginormous coffee cups <laughs> this morning. So uh, um, I'm going to do my best to engage you in the sermon this morning. So hopefully I don't lose any of you. Okay, That's my goal, to keep you all in, engaged in the message this morning. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. And... Uh, you know, this was written by the Apostle John when he was older in his life. He was an older man and he was writing to the younger generations, trying to encourage them in their faith and in their, in their journey um, with Christ. And that's why we've been doing these videos. We wanted to hear from some of those in our congregation who have walked with God much longer than we have. Some of those who have gone down the journey, down the road of faith longer than the rest of us. And let me just tell you, these are just little, like, this isn't even touching um, their story. Okay, this is just a little glimpse of just, they were trying to just speak a little bit of encouragement to you, but these people that you've seen on the video, I would encourage you to just talk with them and say, could you share your story with me? Could you tell me more? Because they um, have incredible life stories to tell. They have been through so many different uh, experiences, and God was with them through each and every single one. He has brought them through so much. It was incredible. It was actually a really enjoyable time to do these videos. And I would encourage you to, to, to hear their stories even further. But this uh, uh, letter was being written by the Apostle John as he was older. He's writing to younger generations. So if you are young here this morning, I would highly encourage you to pay very close attention because he is directing this letter to you. He's trying to help you because you have a lot, uh, a lot of your life left to live. And so he's speaking directly to you this morning. And of course, it's going to be applicable to all of us. But John begins the, the next section of his letter here in 1 John with the central theme of, lo of love. That's what the title of the series was, Light, Love, Life. We saw that God is light. Man, many of our lives are filled with darkness. Many of our lives are are filled with doubt and hopelessness. And God, when He comes in, He brings light. He brings light to that darkness. And now we're shifting to one of the central themes of our faith as Christ followers. And that is love. That's what sets us apart. That's what sets us apart from, from any other faith is the fact that our God, our King, our Savior, our Lord got off of His throne, and He came to earth in the form of, of Jesus Christ. He was God in the bod. He came in the flesh, and He died for us. No other king in human history, no other God, no other gods has ever done such a thing. 
Man, God is love, and He demonstrated it for us. We're going to see that even more clearly this morning. So John begins this section, um, verses 11 through 24, and the central theme is love. So let's pick up in verse 11 of 1 John chapter 3, and it says, This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Is it just me, or is it fascinating that we as Christians need to hear the message or the command to love one another so often? I've heard people say, like, man, I hear it in church all the time. Okay, we're supposed to love one another. I get it. But I don't think we really do. Because otherwise, the Scriptures wouldn't be filled with so many direct messages to us to love one another. To love one another. It's, it's, the scripture is filled with verse after verse with the message, the command to love one another. Yet so often we, we don't get it. Or maybe, maybe we don't understand it. Sadly, churches have a bad reputation as being full of selfish, bickering people. The world often knows the church for its judgment or its rigidness not for its love and joy. This is devastating. It's devastating. It's not what God intended for His church. Church is so important. It's so important to our faith journey and to our life as Christ followers. We need this encouragement. We need this time together. We need God and we need one another. Church... It's so important we don't let the message of love just pass through our minds or pass through our hearts without giving it much reflection and consideration. The Apostle John was writing to Christians in Ephesus who loved Jesus Christ, but they were dealing with each other. They were living out this life with one another in a very unloving manner. They had this relationship pretty much rock solid. They loved Jesus. Jesus was their Lord. Jesus was their Savior. But when it came to these relationships, they stunk. They were awful. They were no good. They, did, they, they weren't living it out this way very well. And John begins this section by exploring the relationship between love and hatred. And between hatred and the spirit of murder. So let's look at verse 12. John says, We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil, and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. So John references back, he refers back to the ancient yet familiar story of the brothers Cain and Abel. If you remember in Genesis, Cain was a farmer and Abel was a herdsman. And when it came time to make an offering to the Lord, Cain offered the fruit of the ground while Abel offered an animal sacrifice. And if you remember in this story, God accepted Abel's offering but he rejected Cain's offering. Why? Why 
Why did God accept one offering and reject another? The reason is, Abel's offering was from the firstborn of his flock. However, Cain's offering was not from his first fruits. Cain gave God his leftovers, while Abel gave God his very best. Abel put God first in his life. Let's look at this story a little bit closer by reading Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. The scripture says, When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops, which means the leftovers. He just gave God kind of some that he had left over. Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Verse 4, Abel also brought a gift, the best. Everyone say the best with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Yeah, you're awake. Some of you didn't say the best, though. Are you angry at me? Okay. Verse 4, Abel also brought a gift, the best portions from the firstborn lambs of his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. So Cain didn't bring his best to the Lord. He gave God his leftovers. And you've heard me say this before, like the scraps from his table, he treated God like a dog. I'm going to just give you what I didn't eat. Cain was a farmer, but he didn't bring God his first fruits. Abel was a rancher, and he brought God his firstborn. Church, it's not that God wouldn't accept Cain's offering. God couldn't accept his offering. Let me say that again. It's not that God wouldn't accept Cain's offering. God couldn't accept his offering. The righteous act on the part of Abel led to Cain's hatred of him. Abel was hated because of righteousness. In a fit of jealousy, the scripture goes on to say that Cain murders his brother Abel. He killed his own brother. It's the first murder in the history of mankind. Sometimes people will hate you because you do the right thing. Isn't that crazy? I wish it wasn't that way, but sometimes people will hate you because you do the right thing. Often, people will become jealous because they can see the drastic difference between the lifestyle of the righteous compared with their own lifestyle. That's why John included the story of Cain and Abel in this letter. So, just journey with me on this thought for a minute. The world will say it hates Christians because we act holier than thou. And the world will say that it really dislikes Christians because Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. You know, sadly, these charges are often true. And because of that, I wanted to take just a moment and deeply and sincerely apologize. 
Christians, it shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't be holier than thou. We shouldn't be hypocrites. As Christians, we are far from perfect. And we will never be perfect until Christ returns. But this morning, I would invite us to consider another reason for the dislike, and I'll even go so far as to say the hatred of Christians. When Christians seek to live like Christ, it exposes the sin and corruption of those not committed to Jesus. If you go into a room that's full of light, and then you go into a room that's full of darkness you can tell the two apart very clearly. Light doesn't mix with darkness very well at all. Light exposes darkness. And so when people are walking in righteousness, it exposes the darkness around them, and the darkness hates that. I like to stay in the darkness, quit exposing my sin, even though we may not be doing it intentionally, And we're not doing it in a holier-than-thou way. and It just happens because light doesn't mix with darkness. Often, excuse me, when, when Christians seek to live like Christ, it exposes the sin and exposes the corruption of those not committed to Jesus. Often it causes shame and regret. It causes anger and hatred. And often it leads even to persecution. Have you ever considered, why do Christians, say like in closed countries, you know, in the Middle East or in China, that are facing extreme persecution, it's like, what is the big deal? Like they're following Jesus Christ, they're supposed to be full of love. Why are they being killed for that? It's because of this very point. Often... When someone is walking in righteousness, it causes the darkness around them to be exposed. And it leads to this anger from the darkness. It leads to hatred. It leads even to persecution. And John is saying this is energized by a spirit of murder. Anger and murder are the best of friends. They are the best of friends. John says, love is the mark, Grace Church. Love is the mark that sets us apart from the world. That is the obvious difference that should set us apart. Look at verse 14. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, let me just remind us right here real quick. He's not even talking about our enemies in this section of of Scripture. He's talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. And he's speaking of a spiritual sense. is still spiritually dead. So love from the heart, love that is full of action, is a true indication that something has changed deep within us. Sadly, far too many churches don't love well. They're not known for their love. We sing, we pray, we worship, but 
far too often we don't love well. And may I remind us that John is talking about our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He's not even talking about our enemies. If we really love one another, church, let me ask you, if you really love your brothers and sisters in Christ, how is that love showing itself? Does that love show itself in our actions? And if it doesn't show up in your actions, how do you know it's real? How do you know? I I have wrestled with this church because if you know me at all, you know that I love this community, I'm for this community, and I want to see this community transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. But what I have wrestled with is they are not going to be transformed by my talking. They're not going to be transformed by musicians. They're not going to be transformed by... I'm going to get some emails. Theology. What they are going to be transformed by is our love when they see something that's so drastically different than what they've experienced. Come on, this world is so tough. It's full of hatred. It's full of... It's full of... uh, It's full of pain and suffering. And man, when we love one another, that's when I believe our community will take notice and they'll say, you know what? I want that. I want what they got because I've never in my life seen anything like it. I've heard all the theologians. Shoot, I read it. I watch it on YouTube. Oh my goodness, I can click a button and watch any theologian I want to. Blah, blah, blah. But what I have never seen, this is from the community, is people who drastically, radically love one another. What does that mean, church? What does that look like? Can I just be so blunt as to say, I'm wrestling with that myself. I'm wrestling with that. Because I, I, I want that for us. I want that for me. I want that for my family. I want us to love well. Verse 15. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And that's the one thing about the Bible is it doesn't hold back any punches. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. The only thing missing is the act itself. And you know, it goes on to say, that murderers, okay, this is the idea, this is the thought that he's speaking of those who are continually committing the act of murder, or those who are continually hating one another, you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. Now, of course, people have abused this verse drastically, but John is giving reference to those who do not walk in victory over hatred. It's the idea of someone who's continually committing the act of murder. John is not saying that all murderers are going to hell. Okay, that's not what he's saying. If that were the case, 
the Apostle Paul could not have eternal life because he committed the act of murder in his past. Yet he is the one who penned, he wrote most of the New Testament. There is certainly, though, a difference between hatred, which is an attitude, and murder, which is an action. But the spirit, okay, the spirit that underlies both hatred and murder is the exact same spirit. So this hits home, okay? This is, this is where the rubber meets the road. It hits home when we begin to think about all the people with whom we're angry. We begin to think of all the people that we begin to, that we dislike or that we hate or I just can't stand them. Inside we boil with anger when we suffer unrighteousness. Now let's, let's talk about anger for just a moment, church. Are you guys doing okay? Okay. All right. Let's talk about anger for just a moment. Anger is a common God-given response that causes us to take action. So anger is actually vital to our lives, but it's also very dangerous. It's like fire. Okay? If it's contained and it's used properly, it can warm your house. It gets out of control, it burns forests down, okay, in communities. It can wreck everything. It's like fire. Anger is vital to our lives. So let me ask you, and feel free to say it out, okay? Let's talk back and forth a little bit. Is it a sin to get angry? A little bit louder. Hey, okay, I think you guys are right. It's not a sin to get angry because Jesus, our Savior, our sinless, perfect Savior, got angry. And He was perfect. So anger is not a sin. Many people think that Christians are not supposed to get angry. Christians are supposed to be nice all the time. Even if we have to fake it. Just put the fake smile on, you're a Christian. That's what you're supposed to do. Some of the best counsel I ever received was from my older brother, Jesse. And he uh, told me, he said, Justin, it's not always about being nice. And man, that just stuck in my head. Listen, if someone breaks into my home, I'm not going to be nice to them. I'm not going to be nice to them. Anger is not a sin. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So anger is not always a bad thing. Anger can push you to God or it can push you away from God. Sometimes anger is justified. People who are upset about something are often motivated to take action. Listen, there's all kinds of justice groups that have been started because people were angry about something. For example, mothers against drunk driving. They're angry that their child was killed by a drunk driver and they're doing their best to stop drunk driving. Many have been fighting against human trafficking because they're angry that someone would stoop so low as to sell a little girl as a sex slave. That stirs up righteous anger. 
anger can stir us. It can lead us to take action. Righteous anger can push us towards God. However, anger can also push you away from God. The Bible says, don't sin in your anger. Listen, church, you may have the right to be angry, but you never have the right to sin. A wife, for example, maybe she finds out that her husband has been unfaithful to her. She has the right to be angry. But the question is, is what is she going to do with that anger? She may think, I'm, I'm going to commit the same offense. I'm going to do the exact same thing to him so that I can get even with him. That, that would be a sinful way for her to respond. So once again, just because you have the right to be angry doesn't mean you have the right to sin. When we allow anger to sit and to fester in our hearts, it becomes a root of bitterness. And it will produce an unforgiving, bitter-tasting spirit. It's the kind of spirit that Jesus warned us against. Verse 16. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up His life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. So real love, true love, is the proving of our faith. If you've ever struggled, man, I don't know if I'm truly a Christian or not, the question is, is how are you loving? That's the proof. So what does this real love, what does this true love require? What does love require of us? Let's keep reading. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person. Oh man, I need to stretch real quick because this is tough stuff right here. Whew. Let me do a... Oh yeah. This is good. Ah. I can't bend this knee very well. Let me read that verse again. If someone has enough money to live well, and they see a brother or sister in need, but show no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Verse 18. Dear children, can we please, for God's sake, not merely say that we love each other? Can we begin to show the truth by our actions. Verse 19. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. True love requires the laying down of our lives. And this, oh my goodness, this is so difficult. But the most powerful example of what love truly looks like is found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. True love requires... Did you hear that, church? True love requires acts of compassion. Ultimately, true love 
requires action. It's not just words. It's not just a feeling. It's action. Because words are cheap. They're so easy to come by. But love in action, stepping out of our busy life path to commit acts of genuine compassion, that's where you begin to experience what love is really all about. And I am guilty, guilty, guilty. I can get so focused on my life path that everything else around me is a blur. And for me to step out of that path to actually focus on someone that needs help, oh my goodness, it's difficult. That's where love, true love, really begins to take effect. Verse 20, even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings and He knows everything. Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence and we will receive from Him whatever we ask because we obey Him and do the things that please Him. Have you ever struggled with a crisis of guilt? Have you ever asked the question, like, how can God ever use me? I'm too weak to be used of God. I'm too sinful. I've made way too many mistakes. How do I even know that I'm truly a son or a daughter of God? Am I, am I doing enough? You know, there's this guilty feeling that comes sometimes as followers of Jesus Christ. We feel guilty and we're motivated shamefully by guilt far too often. And what guilt does is it destroys the confidence of God's children. Guilt damages your relationships. It keeps you stuck in your past. And guilt can even hurt your health. God wants far better for your life than that. You don't have to live with guilt. And let me say, you don't want to live with guilt. And here's an important truth to always hang on to. You don't have to live with guilt. God wants you to live with a sense of promise, a sense of hope. God can bring good out of the stupid decisions that you've made in your life if you'll just give those failures to Him. Once again, that was easy to say, but the question is, is how do we do that? Admit it. Admit that you have made a mistake. Admit it to God. And listen, it won't surprise Him. He already knows, okay? First of all. But admit it to Him. God can bring good out of our stupid decisions. And let me just say, when you admit your mistakes to God, it will not change His perception of you. It will not change His love for you. He will not say, you know what? I didn't realize you were that messed up. So I'm done with you. He will not do that. He will not say that. It won't change His perception of you. It won't change His love for you. And when you do, when you admit and you confess to Christ... Here's what you can expect from Him. You can expect instant forgiveness. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive. 
And God will also forgive. He will also forgive you expecting nothing in return. You don't need to earn it. You don't have to be a a good little righteous boy or girl long enough for God to say, okay, now I'll forgive you. You don't have to earn it, and you'll never deserve it. You can also expect God to forgive you completely. God will throw your sin, the Scripture says, as far as the east is from the west. I've never measured it. But if anybody wants to start driving east, just let me know how long that is, okay? When you find out how far that is. Listen, church, if you're buried in guilt and shame, you'll likely make the current problem that you're facing even bigger. You'll tell yourself, man, I blew it. You'll begin to speak so negative to yourself. You'll have some help from the enemy. Man, you're so bad. I knew you couldn't do it. You're not worthy. You're not good enough. Since you're so bad, you're you're just going to blow it again. What's the use of trying? And it's a nasty cycle. It's a very nasty cycle from which we often can't escape. At least not on our own. You need a power beyond yourself, church. You need Jesus, and we need each other. That's what God intended. That's how it's supposed to work. We need Jesus, and we need one another. The amazing thing is, God wants to forgive you. You don't have to beg for for His forgiveness. You know, some people are like, God, please, pretty please, God, with sugar on top, please, forgive me. You, you don't have to bargain with God. God, if you forgive me, I'll never do it again. You don't have to bribe God. God, if, if you'll forgive me, I promise that I'll always read my Bible. I, I, I promise that I'll, I'll go... Anywhere you call me, you don't have to bribe God. The scripture says you simply confess your sins. And God promises when we confess our sins, He forgives us instantly, totally, completely, freely, and continuously. If a Christian is carrying around this big old bag and this big old burden of guilt... It's because they haven't taken advantage of what Christ did on the cross. He paid the price for all that guilt, all that shame, all that sin. He paid the price for your past. So anytime that past is being dug back up and you're being reminded of it, you know it's from the enemy. It's not from God. Because He already paid the price. And he's not going to pay it again because he already paid it fully and completely. He paid the price for your forgiveness. Take advantage of that. Give God your guilt. And then know, church, don't base it on your feelings. Know without a shadow of a doubt. And believe that you are forgiven. Not because this bald-headed preacher saying it. 
Not because you feel it or don't feel it, but because God said it. And God's Word is true. Verse 23 and 24. And this is His commandment. We must believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. Those who obey God's commands remain in fellowship with Him and He with them. And we know He lives in us because the Spirit He gave us lives in us. I believe the only way we can genuinely, purely, and righteously love one another, loving one another in a way that truly brings a smile to God's face, the only way this will become reality is when we better understand God's great love for us. Somehow, some way, God's love went deeper and deeper and deeper and it went deeper still. But Justin, if you only knew what He did to me, if you only knew, Justin, how she treats me, if you only knew how annoying they are, they drive me crazy. Church, God never said that loving would be easy. He never said laying your life down would be a cakewalk. Church, can I just take the pressure off just for a minute? We're not going to love well all the time. I recognize that. We're going to make mistakes. But let's at least practice I love what John said. I had to skip ahead a little bit. John says in chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 7, the Apostle John says, Dear friends, let us practice loving each other. (laughs) I love that. Let's just practice. The more we practice, the better we get. The better we get, the more confident we will be. And you know what? A confident heart has such great benefits. Not a prideful heart, but a confident heart. With God confidence, we know we're loved and accepted by God. We know we're created and shaped by God. We know we have talents and skills given to us by God. By understanding our true position in Christ, understanding the fact that we are sons and daughters of God, we can be confident in God. And we can be confident that He is always with us, even unto the ends of the earth, even when we open our mouths to speak. In everything we we do, we can have confidence. Church, let's believe God's Word. And let's practice loving one another. And here's an idea. Like John said in verse 16, practice. Here's an idea, okay? Everybody, give an elbow to the person sitting next to you. If you're not sitting by anybody, just give yourself an elbow because you've got to get this. You've got to get this. Where do you start? Practice loving your family. Man, it's, it's so fun to talk about reaching our community and climbing these big mountaintops and doing all kinds of cool things, but you know what? we got to bring it right down to the simple fact you got to start with your family. If you don't love your family well, 
you're not going to love the community well. So start practicing by loving your family. You can also start practicing by loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if you, if you can't love your spouse well, if you can't love your children well, if you can't love your church well, you're probably going to struggle with the idea of loving your enemies. What do you say, church? What do you say? Let's, let's practice this week. And I, I grew up playing sports. Had a lot of practices. Practice, practice, practice. And you know what? Many mistakes are made during practice. But practice prepares you for the game. Let's practice. This should be a safe place for us to practice. Let's practice loving one another, taking care of one another. You see one of us in need, and let's show acts of compassion, acts of kindness, acts of generosity. Let's just practice. And let's get really good at it so that the community goes, I've never seen that, and I want that. What do you say? I'm going to pray, and uh, I'm going to invite Reland to come on up. He has uh, some announcements to share with us this morning. But church, let's just love well. Let's, let's work towards that end, okay? Two greatest commands. Love God, love people. It's that simple. Father God, thank you so much for this time. I know loving well is difficult. It's not easy. And uh, especially when people have committed acts of unrighteousness towards us. But Father, I pray like the scripture says that we would be willing to forgive others just like you have forgiven us. And I love that you are not calling us, you are not asking us to do anything that you yourself have not already done. I love that. Thank you, God, for setting the example for us. Help us to love well. And um, I pray that uh, uh, practice would go smoothly. In Jesus' name, amen.